The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. So it did feel like the story of Tabo Besta had kind of receded from the news cycle for, for a day or two, but it is very much back because another accused in this escape saga appeared in court today. A 51-year-old man was arrested and charged with assisting an inmate escape, also a, a G4S a security guard. So let's find out more about that. Nokukanyo Mtambo, EWN reporter, has uh, been watching that unfold today. Nokukanyo Good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time. What do we know about this G4A security guard who has appeared in court? Good afternoon, Mandy. Uh, The details that we know about him so far are plain and simple, really, that he's a G4S official who is believed to have been at the prison during the escape of Tabobesta almost a year ago. But how exactly he aided in that escape remains uh, to be seen. The NPA spokesperson here in the Free State, Kaladi Shuping, has said he can't reveal those details just yet uh, pending those investigations. He doesn't want to give too much away. Uh, but in due course, of course, he, he has vowed that uh, the NPA will show exactly how he's linked, how he was a part of that escape and who else was a part of, of the escape. But he has appeared. He, he's being remanded in custody and is expected to return in court on the 3rd and the 4th of May with the co-accused when they will then uh, appear in court for their formal bail application. The state has said it plans to oppose bail for those who are going to be appearing at the start of the month. Well, Noko Kunia, let's have a listen to the state prosecutor announcing that the accused will be remanded in prison. The accused faces... Offences falling under Schedule 1. At this stage, the state, uh, like the other accused, opposes his release of bail. And for that reason, the state requests that the matter against him be postponed to the same dates of the 3rd and the 4th of May for bail applications. But he remains in custody until then. Nokukanya, what sense do you get from the state, from prosecutors, about how confident they are generally about their case against this particular individual, but but uh, holistically against all of the accused in this matter? Generally speaking, Mandy, it appears they are certain that the individuals that are currently in custody have intricate details and certainly have a, a case to answer to when it comes to how Tabo Besta um, escaped. But again, they are playing their cards very close to their their chest, uh, not revealing particularly what it is that they know and what it is that they, they, they plan to uh, use against these individuals. Uh, but as far as we know, they are confident that the individuals that they are going after are the ones indeed who are answerable to this case. Nokukanya, thank you very much. Nokukanya Mtambo, EWN reporter, in court for us, uh, where a 51-year-old man, a former G4S security guard, has appeared in court today. He's been remanded in custody. He is joining uh, Besta, Tabo Besta, and Dr. Nandipa Magudamana, her father Zolile Sekeleni, and another former G4S prison warder uh, and an ex-CCTV technician. So that's who's been rounded up so far in this entire saga. That matter will be back in court court in early May. The Midday Report.
Let's have a look at the situation now between uh, ESCOM and some of its unions, which are involved in wage negotiations. Some ESCOM unions demanding a 15% wage increase for the embattled power utility employees. This includes performance bonuses, housing, electricity, cell phone allowances. Um, and this is the National Union of Metal Workers. Then the Solidarity Trade Union, for its part, wants CPI plus 3%. Uh, and let's get a sense now from the Deputy General Secretary for the Public Sector at Solidarity, Helghard Krenier. Helghard, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. What is the, the current status of your negotiations with, with ESCOM? What point are you at? Um, look, Mandy, uh, good afternoon and thank you for the opportunity. Um, the negotiations started yesterday um, a, bit, a bit negatively in the sense that we believe that um, the ESCOM negotiation team wasn't properly prepared um, luckily, after some discussions, you know, the way in which we engaged were changed and they properly gave structured feedback on the demands of the trade unions. And we made good progress, especially late in the afternoon, um, to such a point, to, to such a point where ESCOM basically made a uh, offer of a 3.75% increase. Um, but there's a lot of details that surrounding the other demands that needs, that still needs to be discussed. Um, but it's very good progress um, in comparison to last year. We only got an offer from ESCOM on the second or the third day of negotiations, and at that point it was a 0% increase. So we believe that parties are much closer to each other than we were in the past. I think today the progress has been delayed to a certain extent. Um, it's ESCOM's negotiation team... Um, approaches these negotiations, you know, with a sense of sarcasm and, and, and arrogance, um, and it, do, it really doesn't make the situation easier and the negotiations easier, um, and it's not really the way in which things should be done. Why is it that Solidarity is asking for CPI plus three and, and NUM is asking for considerably higher than that? Um, is there a reason that there's a discrepancy? They want 15%. Look, I think um, obviously trade unions get a mandate from their members. Um, I'm not sure, you know, how the members of NUM and NUMSA determine their demands. Um, I can speak on Solidarity's behalf. We do proper research about what CPI is, but also um, we do research about the increase in living cost of certain things that fall outside of CPI, like the increase in fuel cost. Um, and the increase in medical costs, you know, and that's where our plus 3% comes in. We basically mm. give ourselves a bit of room to negotiate for increases that are above and beyond the CPI that our members experience, you know. So that is what, that's how we approach it. And um, we also do a detailed presentation of how we arrive at that CPI plus 3% during the negotiation process. Um, we haven't done it today, um, but we also, this is, it's one of the things on the agenda that still needs to happen. Uh, Elhart, you say that uh, you're not too far away from each other and uh, it does look as though prospects are, are good. Uh, is there a hypothetical scenario where solidarity uh, reaches an agreement with, with ESCOM but NUM does not and then that perhaps leads to some kind of, of uh, labor action? Look, I mean, we try and align. Um, labor always tries to align their demands. It's not always possible and realistic and practical. And we try and do that as far as possible. And we would sort of, we try and play the reasonable, um, realistic 
role within these negotiations to a certain extent in that, you know, we don't pick sides. We try and align our labor demands. We see where um, we have the same sort of demands and concerns, um, and we discuss those. And then obviously you sort of try and find a way to work together. So it's a very difficult situation. In the past, um, we have been very successful in sort of aligning the demands of all the trade unions, and, and we don't intend to sign an agreement with uh, ESCOM, um, you know, prematurely when, you know, there's still a lot of negotiation that needs to happen. So trade unions do attempt to align as far as possible, but we respect the fact that each union has their own demand as well. Mm. Um, so it's it sort of this... There's sort of two negotiation processes going on, you know, between trade unions to try and for them to try and align and on the other side with the employer as well. Um, you know, but we are also sensitive to um, a possibility that ESCOM tries to conquer and divide, you know, and sort of abuses the fact that we have different demand than the other trade unions. Helgaard, thank you very much. Helgaard Kurnia, the Deputy General Secretary for the Public Sector at Solidarity, very, very clearly unpacking the situation there. So ESCOM involved in negotiations with the unions at the moment. Uh, Solidarity is asking for CPI plus 3%. NUM, we were hoping to speak to the National Union of Metal Workers. They are not answering, unfortunately. Uh, But NUM at the moment is wanting 15%, a 15% salary hike for ESCOM employees. What do you think about that? Do you think that is warranted. Uh, their argument, I imagine, and I would like to hear from them, is that it would be 15% salary increase across the board, that housing allowance would be raised to 7,000 rand, employees to be allowed to buy houses anywhere in the country. Medical aid would shift to 80%, so it's 20% contribution by employees. A cell phone allowance of 1,000 rand, a 1,500 rand electricity allowance, a once-off 1,500 rand essential worker or danger allowance as well. 20,000 rand study benefit per child, 10,000 rand car allowance through ESCOM's so-called Vehicle X scheme. So these are some of the demands coming out uh, from them. Unfortunately, they aren't available to speak to us now. But do you agree with that? Do you agree that it should be a 15% uh, increase for NUM associated uh, members, employees at ESCOM at the moment? On 702 and Cape Talk, this is the Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. Specialists who enable your business growth aspirations. The former Transnet execs, Brian Molefe and Norj Singh, returning to the Palm Ridge Specialized Commercial Crimes Court today. Remember, this is all to do with that infamous uh, locomotive case. There are 11 accused in this matter, facing charges of fraud, corruption, money laundering, uh, contravention of the Public Finance Management Act, the PFMA. Bernadette Wicks following that matter for us. Bernadette, good afternoon to you. Uh, Tell us about this court appearance today. Well, Mandy, it was a very brief court appearance. Um, On the last occasion, the state did disclose the docket to the defense, and they've since asked for further particulars. They've also asked for copies of some of the documents that the state's relying on, and so the state's now agreed to provide them with that before the next uh, scheduled court date, which will be the 29th of June. Um, But we did also hear an application from Eric Wood, who's one of the accused in the case, to have his bail conditions relaxed again, and that application was granted. Uh, So what happens now, Benedict? 
Um, the case will return in June. We know that ultimately it is headed for the High Court, so potentially we could see it transferred then, um, but we'll have to wait and see whether they're ready to, to proceed to that stage when it comes back in June. Benedict's still there. Oh, I think we've lost Benedict Wicks, unfortunately, but I think we've got the sense of what's happening uh, in court today, Benedict, in the Palm Ridge Specialised Commercial Crimes Court, where Brian Molefe and Norj Singh, 11 accused in total, facing charges of fraud, corruption, money laundering, contravention of the PFMA, all linked to Transnet's uh, procurement of 1,064 locomotives, that case going back to 2015. The Midday Report. Hi, Mandy. ESCOM should grant the NUM increase and cut their staff by half. And let's see who's going to blink. Mandy, it's astounding how out of touch the unions are. These are the highest paid incompetence in the country, and they want to be paid even more. Their demands are ridiculous. They're just trying to justify their, their existence. You know, it's socialism. That's what it is. It's uh, we'll give everybody massive increases, even those that are incompetent and un- unproductive. Uh, collective bargaining will still kill a lot of companies. Thank you for those WhatsApp voice notes responding there to the fact that there are negotiations underway between ESCOM and the unions. NUM is asking for 15%. We were hoping to speak to them to understand why it is at that number. I'm sure they'll argue inflation, uh, cost of living, uh, all of that stuff as well. Uh, remember under, under Andre de Reta, uh, there was a significant cut down of the staff contingent um, at ESCOM. There, I think it was about 30,000 people uh, that uh, were, were no longer in employed at ESCOM. Um, that's an interesting argument. Cut the cut the staff and give them the increase. See who blinks first. What do you think? Do you think that that 15% should be granted? Solidarity says the offer is around 3% at the moment. Let me know your thoughts. The Midday Report. Now, there have been reports in uh, various newspapers that South Africa's state-backed vaccine manufacturer, BioVac, has been snubbed by the Department of Health after it switched to a cheaper supplier of shots to protect children against the deadly pneumococcal disease. Uh, so BioVac, which we know, uh, we, of course, we were very aware of what was happening with BioVac during the COVID-19 situation. Um, it won this contract in 2019. It was expected to continue to supply the government for its next three-year tender from January 2024. Uh, But uh, it seems now that CIPLA has been awarded uh, this contract and it means that the government is going against its commitment to improve the capacity domestically. Now, on the money show yesterday with Bruce Whitfield, Dr. Morena Makwana, CEO of the BioVac Institute, said that being snubbed by the government will stunt BioVac's readiness to supply vaccines in the future and he says, although costlier than Cipla, their product covers more types of pneumonia. Have a listen. The fact that we're in a pandemic, Africa was allowed to get vaccines. And for this to essentially be snubbed by your own local market in this context does not bode well for, you know, for the industry going forward. But more importantly, for things like pandemic readiness, you know, how will we ever be ready if our local market is not supportive of us? So we're not actually comparing a like for like, okay? Now, the specifications when the tender came out were very broad. The product that we've been supplying, which we have a technology transfer from Pfizer, 
covers the broadest range uh, of what we call serotype. So a kit gets to be more protective. That's why it's called a 13 valent, one three. It covers 13, let's say, of pneumonias out there, just to keep it simple. The one that has now worn covers only 10. That's Dr. Moreno Makwana, CEO of the BioVac Institute. Well, let's get response to this now from the Department of Health uh, with Foster Mohale, who is the spokesperson. Foster, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, firstly, let's let's start with the basics because BioVac says that it's been snubbed by the Department of Health. What is your reaction to that? Uh, good afternoon to Mindy and good afternoon to your listeners and thanks for this uh, opportunity. Yes, indeed, as the Department of Health, uh, we want to put it categorically that uh, we have not snubbed uh, biovac, and also we want to make our commitment uh, uh, that uh, we will always try to find possible and practical ways to support local investment. So there was no snubbing of uh, any bidder uh, who was self-participating in the tender. Uh, so let me understand this. You are not continuing with BioVac. You are going to CIPLA. But isn't this in direct contradiction then to your commitment to improve our capacity locally? Remember, we, 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 are, we, we are operating within the legal procurement uh, uh, framework. So uh, as much as we continue to strive to support the local uh, investment, but we are not going to ignore our legal uh, uh, procurement uh, frameworks that uh, we have to comply with uh, as the as government. So, of course, uh, we understand the concern raised by BioVac. Uh, we always try to uh, communicate with them in order to see how uh, we can continue to, uh, uh, as we communi- uh, communicated as government, committed as government, that will try to uh, support the local investment. So, we are going to continue with the uh, negotiations, with the discussions with them, so that they will understand the situation as well we are as government, because we cannot uh, disregard the, the laws and the policies of the country. So I'm I'm looking at the business day here, and they're referring to tender documents, which show that CIPLA was awarded 99 out of a possible 100 points for its uh, nine of which were for its BE status, 90 for price. BioVac's BE status was 10, which means its bid price must have been higher. Is this is it purely a cost thing that that is driving this legal requirement, or is it more complicated than that? Yeah, no, it's, it's more complicated. Uh, there are many uh, factors that uh, we have to uh, consider. Of course, the uh, price should be one of the determining factors, precisely because of our shrinking uh, budget. Uh, as, as you know, that the government uh, budget uh, has been uh, reduced from time to time. So we have to, we have to consider a number of factors, including the budget. But I uh, also want to, as the minister, today to speak to the minister of health, together with the minister of uh, uh, science and technology and the minister of finance, there are some discussions on how, as the government, will continue to uh, support and prioritize the local investment. Okay. But uh, that, will, that will not mean we are going to disregard the, the, uh, the procurement uh, policies of the country. Uh, Foster, I don't have much time left, but I just want to ask you this, this last thing, is that BioVac is saying that the decision to move from a 13-valent shot to a 10-valent jab is a retrogressive move. In other words, you are now giving us a, a, a lesser effective vaccine. Isn't that a problem? No, no, not really. Currently, remember that we talk about the, the number of strains in the currently in the in the in the country currently. The number of strains, the highest number that we can go is up to uh, ten. So, of course, uh, what the the Bible was providing was up to eighteen uh, 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 variants that can be protected through 
uh, their product. But unfortunately for now, we say we can go up to 10 uh, strains or variants uh, that we need to protect. Foster, thank you. Foster Mohale is the spokesperson for the Department of Health responding there to uh, the argument from BioVac. Um, and, and the long and the short of it here is I agree with BioVac in the sense that uh, we should be supporting local. We can't be stuck like we, we were in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic where we didn't have resources locally for vaccines and we become reliant on the, um, on the Indian uh, producers as an example, which we had to do the Serum Institute in India. And also we want the best possible vaccine. So we want more strains rather than then less. Uh, so that's the explanation from the Department of Health. The Midday Report. The Namibian President Haig Geingob is visiting South Africa on a state visit. He's been meeting with President Cyril Ramaphosa at the Union Buildings. It's uh, the first visit since 2012 from a Namibian uh, president, which is very interesting. And of course, there's this whole issue of palapala that is kind of uh, drifting around because we know that both uh, Geingob and Ramaphosa were implicated in that cover-up at Ramaphosa's Limpopo farm. So that's been an issue that the Justice Minister has been addressing. We'll play some audio of Ronald Lamola in a couple of minutes. But first, let's speak to our reporter who's there, Ndaizo Netonje. Ndaizo, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Tell us about what the, the President of South Africa and the President of Namibia have been saying. Yeah, good afternoon, uh, uh, Mandy, and uh, to the 702 listeners. I'm hoping you'll be able to hear me because there's some background noise. Yeah, so um, it's mainly about uh, bilateral relations between the two countries and um, the relations that uh, the two nations have, especially from an economic front, as well as um, the role that the two nations play in the Sadat region, um, particularly when you look at the situation that is happening in Eswatini um, and in Mozambique, where peace and stability is concerned. A couple of bilateral uh, agreements signed um, a moment ago between South Africa and, um, uh, and Namibia, issues relating to trade and investment and the role of Namibia and, uh, as well as South Africa as far as the Africa free trade uh, 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 areas concerned with South Africa being the gateway to the rest of Africa, but Namibia also going up uh, just above uh, South Africa when you look at where uh, they are located ge- geographically. So a lot to be said around uh, trade and investment, very little to be said about what you mentioned uh, as far as the, the, the issue of Parapala is concerned. We're hoping that uh, when the question and answer session, which is about to take place, happens, members of the media will be able to ask that question and hopefully we'll get some answers. But we did uh, pose those questions to uh, Justice Minister Ronald Lamula, and um, this is what he had to say. When we received the request, the request was not compliant with our own laws and regulations to mutual legal assistance. And we returned uh, the, the request to the Namibian authorities uh, outlining the issues that we want them to comply with. And that is where we are. We have not yet received uh, a notice that complies with the request that they, they provided to us. And that is the stage where we are. 
Ndaizo, thank you very much uh, for bringing us that audio. Ndaizo Netonja, I'm going to let you get to that Q&A session. Hopefully the president does answer a question around Palapala. I don't exactly expect him to. I'm sure it will be asked, though. So on the sidelines the uh, of, of this meeting today, you heard Ronald Lamola, but also Patricia DeLille, the Minister of uh, Tourism, has also been speaking today. And she's been speaking about the fact that uh, there's this deal that's been signed between SA Tourism and the Namibian counterparts. Uh, She's also given an update on the board of SA Tourism, uh, which, remember, she said earlier this week she is going to axe that board as of Friday this week. Have a listen to this, and the sound is courtesy of the SABC. Uh, Yesterday I had a meeting uh, with the Minister of Tourism, and there is a great need for us to... Uh, get the tourism numbers back to where it was pre-COVID. You know, the numbers have gone down substantially. So we've put together a technical destination marketing from both sides and uh, they will be having their first meeting in the next two weeks. And we're also going to look at the air access both from South Africa to Namibia. So I'm very excited that we will be signing that memorandum of uh, agreement today. I'm gazetting uh, tomorrow in terms of the the act, uh, the dissolution of the tourism board. And in the same act, I will then be announcing three names that will be the caretaker board until I can um, replace and, and bring a new board. That is the Tourism Minister, Patricia DeLille, giving us an update there on the Tourism Board, which is going to be dissolved. The Midday Report. So, Mandy, I just wanted to point out that uh, what Solidarity is asking for is uh, CPI plus 3%. So, if we take... uh, if we take CPI at 7%, they're actually asking for 10%, which suddenly doesn't make NUMSA's 15% look that uh, that excessive. Um, it's just they phrased it slightly more cleverly um, than, than, uh, than uh, NUM have. Um, so, yeah, just a perspective on that, Stephen, from some degree. Mandy, this uh, thing with the biovac and CIPLA, when the government's involved in something like this, as a... As a beaten up South African citizen, I, I firmly believe that there's somebody getting a kickback here again. Hi, Mandy. Uh, so, yeah, so these demands from NUM workers for ESCOM employees, etc., uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But um, the one thing that does kind of stick out is that they want performance bonuses. So, Last time I checked, the performance bonus is determined by progress or improvement. So doesn't doesn't the the opposite count as well? Um, seeing that ESCOM is underperforming, shouldn't they be paying some back? Thank you very much for those WhatsApp voice notes, uh, Stephen. I'll, I'll start with you. So um, I did say that it was CPI plus three percent. Maybe maybe I should have explained that better from yesterday. Uh, CPI of course seven point one percent. It did go up from seven percent the month before. So effectively, yes, one hundred percent correct. It's CPI plus three percent, which makes it. 10%, um, and we know that NUM's asking for 15%. According to Solidarity, ESCOM is more around the 3% mark at this point, um, but he says that they seem to be finding each other. Um, so is 10% still too high then, I suppose, is the question that follows. Uh, and what are your thoughts on 15%? I understand the issues around performance bonuses. Uh, do you think that the employees at ESCOM should be blamed for the performance of ESCOM, or do you think that it is the executives who should be 
held accountable. I think this is certainly going to get people uh, speaking and people will be opinionated about this because at the end of the day, we're not getting the product that ESCOM is actually supposed to be producing. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener on 702 at Cape Talk. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. See money differently. Let's take a look now at the situation in the city of Joburg because uh, we know that the current mayor, Tapelo Ahmad's term is nearing a uh, inevitable end because of a motion of no confidence um, that is going to be brought against him. And now it looks like uh, Al-Jamaa is going to field another councillor, Cabello Guamanda, as the next mayor. And the ANC is supporting this as part of its coalition. Hanif Hendricks is the leader of Al-Jamaa. Hanif, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Um, are the reports accurate, firstly, that Al-Jamaa councillor Cabello Guamanda will be the candidate for the next mayor of the city of Joburg? The reports, uh, thank you very much. Uh, and... Um uh, it's a pleasure to uh, uh, respond to your invitation. Uh, the reports are purely speculative. There has been no engagement between Aldemar and the EFF and the ANG at any level with regard to the motion of Action SA, which I don't think will be on the order of paper soon. So at the moment, uh, um, the executive mayor is continuing to stabilize the finances of the city of Joburg. And as you know, when he started, he had 400 million rand in the bank. They are now uh, uh, collecting 4 billion rand a month. And the last we heard from the ANC was an interview with when the story broke one evening. And the regional secretary of the ANC made it clear that they are very happy uh, with his performance. Aldama is also happy because we asked him to find the one and a half billion rand, to find the fact which is in the previous DA budget, mm-hmm. which was going to which was going to leave through illicit transactions, and he found together with the assistant of the previous mayor one and a half billion rand which is a windfall which enabled him to pay service providers to clean okay. the city three times. So everyone is very happy with his performance. Okay. EFF, Khalif, the, record, the problem, ANC, though, is that the, the, the Patriotic Alliance is not happy, and the Patriotic Alliance is an alliance partner. So what yeah, now? Yeah, what does yeah, that look, mean? Because that means that, that uh, you could have a vote of no confidence. Look, uh, that is possible. They are the kingmaker. They have the votes uh, that help. Uh, us reimagine politics where a party with just three PR councillors has been asked to govern the city of Johannesburg. Uh, when the offer was made, that is the concern that, you know, we would rather want to focus on the 224 campaign and use all our manpower. I release uh, uh, councillor the Pala Ahmed for the sake of the benefit of the residents of the city of Joburg, because I knew he would do a good job. He's done a good job. But uh, now, uh, you know, we, we, uh, our, our concerns has been confirmed that the Patriotic Alliance, uh, they have the, they are, they have the kingmaker status. They can change everything. But I'm very confident that when a, when a motion of no confidence 
appears that the ANC will still vote in favour of Councillor Tepala Ahmed and the EFF. Mm. And uh, the, if, the PAA you... has that prerogative to, to change things around. And then the next battle will be uh, who is going to be the replacement mayor. That will most probably happen in about two months, three months' time. And it all seems to be, according to reports, that it will be Cabello Guamanda. Is that an option for you? Would you put Cabello Guamanda forward as another mayor? Look, we have three PR councillors. And remember, you always have me. I can always be redeployed. But let's focus on our three PR councillors. They are very competent. Our, in fact, uh, the party nominated Imran Wursa for this position uh, when, as part of the minorities. Because Councillor Tepalo Ahmed, when there was contestations, he decided to step down so the unity is preserved. Uh, Councillor Kwamanda has been in the background acting, uh, acting in my place because I can't be in Joburg all the time. I'm all over the country. I work in 50 villages. So uh, right. he has been getting mandates from me. Uh, and when he joined the party... Uh, we realized that he is a party because he was a personal advisor to okay. three mayors of the city of Johannesburg Hanif, before he joined the party. We have to leave it there, unfortunately. Hanif Hendricks, leader of Al Jamaa, speaking to us there about the, the situation in the city of Joburg. Uh, Gaten McKenzie from the Patriotic Alliance has now withdrawn uh, the fact that he could be available to be the next mayor of the city of Joburg. But uh, as Hanif is, is, is saying there, as far as he is concerned, he thinks Tapelo Ahmad's doing a very good job and he's finding the money. If you've seen any of his media interviews, you might disagree. Uh, Action SA wants to table a motion of no confidence in him and in the speaker as well. But Aljama thinks Tabelo Ahmad is, is fabulous. The Midday Report. Every Thursday on the Midday Report, we speak to the author of a local non-fiction book. And um, this week's it's a bit tricky, right? Because uh, the book is a book that I wrote. It's called The Whistleblowers. The updated edition is out this week. And I can't interview myself. So I'm going to interview Jeff Wicks, who's an investigative journalist at News24, because um, there's an additional chapter on Babita Diakoran, the whistleblower from the Gauteng Health Department uh, who was gunned down after she exposed wrongdoing and tried to stop fraudulent payments at the Tembisa Hospital. Uh, and this ties in because News24 today is releasing a documentary titled Silenced on the Babita Dear Karan story. So there, there are two aspects here. Um, and, and for me, this is so important because we know that corruption and fraud is endemic in South Africa. Whistleblowers have played a pivotal role in bringing wrongdoing to light. They have provided an invaluable service to society through disclosures about cover-ups and malfeasance and, and wrongdoing. And their courageous acts have resulted in the recovery of millions of rands to the fiscus and yet they are treated terribly in most cases the outcome for whistleblowers are harrowing are devastating and in the case of Babita Diakaran which is the worst case they are killed so Jeff Wicks from News24 joining me now Jeff thank you very much for, for stepping in because I cannot interview myself um, but you of course deservedly uh, deserve uh, to to be interviewed today because uh, the focus of this additional chapter that I've written is about the work that you have done in exposing what is going on at Tembisa Hospital and how crucial Babita Dear Karan's whistleblowing was. 
Absolutely, and thank you for having me, Mandy. And I think it's worth saying at the outset that you've given whistleblowers a voice um, more so than anyone else and highlighted the persecution and the, the plight that they face. And, and this is something that affects hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And um, Babita Diokaran's case is... Like you said, um, it, it, it had a deadly consequence. She stood up against corruption. And um, in as much as your book honors her contribution to South Africa, we hope that the film that we premiere tonight and release tomorrow morning um, honors her in some way. I often say that for me, the story of Babita Dia Karan, I do hope will be the catalyst for, for change because we've heard the president make a commitment to whistleblowers at the Zondo Commission. We've heard Zondo himself uh, say that we need whistleblowers, there needs to be a change in, in legislation. And I do, I, I do hope that the story of Babita Diakran and her death will not be in vain because a lot needs to change. Absolutely. And and uh, we share that hope, you know, and it's it's part of the reason why we've put so much into this project over the last year, trying to finish the work that Babita Diokaran started when she first put her hand up in early August of 2021 and said, there's something going wrong with Tendisa hospital spending. And that was just the start. And perhaps she asked for too much information or perhaps she showed her hand too early to the wrong people. And, and that's why she lost her life. And, and, and another aim of, of the film that, that we've produced is to really highlight that Corruption is not a victimless crime, you know, it's, and standing against it can have deadly consequences. And, and I really do feel for especially Babita Diokran's daughter, but her entire family who, um, who have been left with such a significant hole in their lives, all because she did the right thing. The film, of course, uh, features Babita Diokaran's daughter. I've interviewed her um, for for this chapter in The Whistleblowers as well because at the end of the day, it does come down to to a person who has lost their life. It comes down to a family who has lost a loved one. And it comes down to a teenager who now no longer has a mother. And I think that is also an important aspect of the story to, to remember. Yeah, I- I think corruption has become so endemic in South African society that we often forget of the consequences that people face when they stand against it. And, and you know, Tiara Diokaran, um, she's, she's been so brave in this. Um, and, you know, her loss needs needs to be known. And, and the, the, the South African public needs to understand that because her mother um, put her hand up and said, there's something wrong with these payments, and she paid the ultimate price for it, Babita is never going to be able to, to go to her wedding. She's never going to be able to, to see her children. And, and this is the cost of greed and corruption, really. So in, in the book, I also tell the story about how Jeff first got information, the behind-the-scenes details of investigative journalism, the sources who come forward. Uh, Jeff, what was it for you that intrigued you, that compelled you to stay on the story despite the enormous risk to yourself? Mandy, you know, it was what we considered, what would the cost be of doing nothing? And, and you know, Babita Diokran's assassination was high profile from the start, and there was obviously more to it. And we felt that um, as a whistleblower, she deserved to be showcased, and there was obviously a reason behind her murder, and we aimed to expose that. And, and, and I think we've, we've gone a ways towards that. We've at least brought to light what the Gauteng Health Department didn't want people to see. They didn't want people to know that she'd flagged 850 million rands worth of payments from Tindisa Hospital. And now that's 
impossible to ignore. That number has now increased to over a billion rand. And extraction syndicates, which operated for years in secret, are now in full public view. So we hope that action will be taken so that Bavita's death won't be in vain. So, Jeff, just lastly, uh, tell people about Silenced. It is launched tonight. It's published tomorrow. Absolutely. It goes live on News24 for subscribers tomorrow morning. It will be premiering tonight in Rosebank. And it's a feature-length documentary that really touches on the person that Babita Diokran was and what she meant to her family and friends and what her sacrifice means to the people of South Africa. Jeff Wicks, News24 investigative journalist. Thank you so much. Uh, I can't say it enough. The work that Jeff has done and the News24 team has done on investigating the fraud at Tembisa Hospital and paying tribute to Babita Diokaran and ensuring that her death was not in vain is just, it's exceptional journalism. Um, I tell the story of Jeff Wicks and the investigation, but also crucially the story of Babita Diokaran uh, through her, her daughter and her sister as well in uh, the up updated version of my book it is called the whistleblowers and it is out now the midday report that's a wrap of the day's news don't forget you can catch the full midday report live on 702 and cape talk via our streams on youtube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at eyewitness news till the next time i'm mandy wiener the midday report